It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. Silent Green is people! No, I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special on Uncut Gems, the new film from the Safdie brothers starring Adam Sandler. And joining me in the Slate studio to talk Uncut Gems are Heather Schwedell, who's the staff writer at Slate. Hey, Heather. Hi, Dana. And also Jeffrey Bloomer, a Slate senior editor. Hey, Jeff. Hi. So I think you guys are a little fresher from this movie than me. So you may have to prop me up on a couple of plot details because there's a lot of twists and turns um, through rocks and people's intestines and other places <laughs> in this weird movie. And I probably saw it a week ago at this point. First, I'll do my usual and just go around the table and get a quick response, yes or no. Would you send a friend or family member over the holidays to see Uncut Gems? Yes, but I would uh, check with them on their like recent heart health. It's, uh, <laughs> it is a it is a tense movie, and I will recommend it to people. But it is a grueling watch. Yes, I want to get into whether that gruelingness is worth the gruel or not, because in my particular case, I didn't really find it so. What about you, Heather? Yes, I absolutely would. Were you both really fond of it? Like, if you had a top ten for the year, would you think about putting uncut gems in it? I think I would. For about half the movie, I thought, okay, this is like too punishing, even for the Safties. Like, I don't know how much more of this I can take. And then by the end, I was like, this is complete catharsis and loved it. So it's just a tough movie, but I think so. I think I loved it a little more than that. Just from the minute I saw Adam Sandler in in that costume, I just think he was amazing in it. I was so compelled by everything in it. Yeah, I guess to me, the question is going to end up being, and we'll get into this, whether that catharsis ever really does come because this movie has such an unrelenting pace and tone. There's really not any modulation in that tone. Maybe mm-hmm. we should actually, to give a sense of it, just throw here to a clip from the trailer, which if nothing else will give you a sense of the sound mix of this movie, which I'm sure we'll talk about, the, the layering of dialogue and music and background noise and just the general sense of claustrophobic sound clutter that is happening <laughs> at every moment of Uncut Gems. How you doing, Holly? How's it going? How's it going? Good Pesach, Holly. All right, Larry, you're a Jew again. Welcome back. I made a crazy risk. You gambled. And it's about to pay off. So I want the Celtics to cover. I want the Celtics halftime. I want Garnett points and rebounds. What do you know? I don't know. I just know. Well, I'll tell you what I know. That's the dumbest fucking bet I ever heard of. I disagree. I disagree, Gary. 
So that should give you a little bit of a sense of the emotional tonality of this movie, which, as we were saying, is just sort of stays at 11 the whole time. And that is also, to some degree, a Safdie Brothers thing. I mean, maybe we should quickly talk about who they are and where this movie comes in their career. This is their sixth feature film, I believe, which is a lot given how young they are. They're 35 and 33 years old, two brothers from New York, who have this very particular filmmaking language and vibe that all of their films so far that I've seen share, and certainly their last one, Good Time, with Robert Pattinson, which was, I would say, along with this, sort of they're moving into the mainstream, right, and using bigger stars and getting a little bit more out of the indie world where they started. That movie also has nonstop pacing, a very similar sort of seedy underbelly of New York setting, and a somewhat similar main character in the sense that Robert Pattinson's bank robber is just as luckless and doomed and makes just as poor decisions in every moment as Adam Sandler's jeweler does in Uncut Gems. Um, but this movie seems to have represented even more of a step into the mainstream for them. Like, it's gotten lots of prizes. My own group, New York Film Critics Circle, gave it Best Director, I think, for the brothers. And then the National Board of Review just gave it, I think, a Best Actor award in addition to making it one of their top 10 movies. So it seems like, even though I'm not the fondest of Uncut Gems, we're going to be hearing a lot about it in the next few months over over awards season. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I've loved these brothers for a long time, and I am interested in this new, particularly frenetic time that they're in. Because if you look at some of the older movies like Daddy Long Legs, or um, I always want to call it Heaven Can Wait, but it's Heaven Knows What, <laughs> which featured like real life heroin addicts in New York, their movies used to be more circumspect. Certainly, they there was always like a tone of desperation, and there was always a protagonist who was living on the edge in a way that was seemed deliberately making the audience uncomfortable. But what's changed is like this, like sort of electronic, propulsive, just all-consuming sense of, like, desperation and, like, having to achieve something and, like, the whole movie feels like one long shot of that um, is fairly new. They used to be quieter. I'm not sure what uh, to make of that evolution. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that my favorite of their movies that I've seen is probably Daddy Long Legs, which is their most autobiographical movie, too. Mm -hmm. It feels like a first movie. It's not their very first movie, but it's their second and sort of their first um, autobiographical movie. This movie has autobiographical elements as well, apparently. Their father, who is in a way the villain, but a somewhat pitiable villain of heaven knows what, right, was a pretty irresponsible dad and a very strange dad. And at some point during their childhood, he worked in Manhattan's Diamond District. And I'm not sure if he was a hustler on the level of Adam Sandler's character in this movie, but he was certainly around characters like that. And they seem to be interested in those kinds of characters, people who exist on the margins of New York and are kind of hustling their way to make a living. So maybe we should describe, I'm going to throw this to you, Heather. Um, Describe Howard Ratner, the character that we meet um, by traveling through his bowels after the credit (laughs) sequence of Uncut Gems. Sure. So Howard Ratner is played by Adam Sandler. He owns his own jewelry shop in the Diamond District, but it's sort of in this suite where you enter it from, like, it's not like he has a storefront. And he's very connected um, in the Diamond District, uh, where I guess everyone sort of knows each other. And he lives on Long Island, um, where he has this beautiful family that's sort of like showy new money. His wife is played by Adina Menzel and he has three children. He's addicted to gambling. Um, He has a mistress who works with him in the jewelry shop and his life is sort of a mess. He's estranged from his wife. He he can never make it anywhere on time. He, He owes all these people all these debts so they're chasing him down but he still 
thinks he's doing fine and is thinks like the next big score is what's going to fix everything. Yeah, he's sort of a beautiful loser in a kind of 70s movie mode. And mm-hmm. in general, these guys seem to be very indebted to things like Sidney Lumet movies about New York in the 70s or Midnight Cowboy. You know, I mean, he's almost a character, although it, this movie takes place in 2012, so it's relatively contemporary. Right. He seems to be somebody out of those days of New York. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like they're almost making an argument about New York having those fringes and then still being very much alive. Like if it seems like they're saying if you go to 47th Street between 5th Avenue and 6th Avenue, you can find these people. We did that. Half the people in the movie are the actual people who hang out on that street. Um, it seems that they're pushing back against the general consensus that New York is now boring or doesn't have these people living on the fringes anymore. Yeah, it seems like the main reason they said it in 2012, really, is so that Kevin Garnett, who appears as himself, the basketball star, could mm-hmm. still be a basketball player, right? They wanted to set it then so that they could have the 2012 playoffs serve as part of the climax of their movie. Totally. Now... I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Did you guys know that that was a real basketball player? Yes, I did. (laughs) I realized the three of us are probably no sports fans among us, but I knew enough that I knew he was a real basketball player and I knew his nickname was KG. I did not know that he was retired now and that 2012 was sort of like he was already older then and um, more of a veteran. Same. I didn't know the retired stuff, but I just figured from the Safdie Brothers general process, as you say, of casting people from different walks of life as themselves, right? The weekend also appears as himself in this movie. Um, I figure that it must be a real basketball player. I'm dating a real jock now and he's going to murder me, but I like, <laughs> I had, I had no idea. Did he see the movie? Uh, not yet. We can get into it later, but I think people who know what happened in the 2012 playoffs with the Boston Celtics are going to have a fundamentally different experience with this movie than mm-hmm. if you don't know what's going to happen, right? Except <laughs> that I feel like even if you didn't know, it would be somewhat telegraphed by, well, or maybe not, I guess. I guess th- there's a lot hanging on that game. But right. either way, I mean, whether they won or lost that game, you just know that Howard Ratner is doomed from the beginning. Yes. And some people are talking about that as a strength of this movie. But I mean, I'm just going to put it out there at the top of our spoiler. I felt like every turn in this movie, I had a basic idea where it was going to go. I didn't necessarily know how he was going to screw himself and his entire family over and probably die by the end of the movie. But I just knew that that was going to happen because because this movie has no modulation in its tone. And uh, and I know that's purposeful on the Safdie's part, but to me, the catharsis, Jeff, that you were mentioning never really came, or if it did, it came up front. I just sort of knew in advance, like, there's going to be hell to pay for living this way because the whole movie is sort of about racking up debts, emotional and financial, that you can never possibly pay off. I mean, a big practical logistical question that occurred to me when we get the first 20 minutes or so that set up the way, the crazy way that Howard Ratner lives is how did he get so rich? I mean, if he's this bad about every single business decision and everything he does is this kind of small time hustle that doesn't work out and he's constantly gambling big, how does this little jewelry store that, as you say, doesn't even have a storefront under 47th Street keep his wife living in style in Long Island and make them have this nice life? I mean, is it just 2012 economy is different than what we would have today? It just seemed to me like... Unless we had some explanation of how much worse things got for him all of a sudden in 2012, he wouldn't have been able to build any kind of fortune on the level of dysfunction that he lives at. I I don't know, Heather. What did you think? I thought that the movie made a slightly more rosy argument about him in general than I think you did. I think I did. I did assume something horrible was going to happen to him. But I also like he does win. He like wins. He wins that giant bet. And like, like, like that's like what he's like wrote everything on. It seems like he knew once he got money that he was going to gamble. Maybe even if he had got the million he was supposed to get for the Opal, he would have done it. 
and then he did win. And there was that moment of like, holy shit, he pulled this off. He, you know, it was an inopportune moment and then that, and it didn't end well for him, but <laughs> he did. And I think you also do have a sense that he's desperate, right? Because he's, he's um, b- about to be kicked out by his wife because of his mistress, presumably, right? Is that, was that your read on that? Yeah. Um, or she's asking for a divorce, I think. Yeah. Now that you mention it, it does seem like how did things... So his father-in-law, I guess, Adina Menzel, helps him out with money at some point in the movie, uh, played by Judd Hirsch. So maybe he helped set him up in some way. Or, you know, how did he become a jewelry dealer? Like, was his father or someone else originally in the business with him? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I kind of wanted a little bit more of that. I mean, I feel like the same thing with Good Time, that the the Safdies are really good at creating a mood and a milieu and a tone and a kind of emotional, effective net that you get caught up in. And that happens in both those movies, Good Time and Uncut Gems. But in both those movies also, I don't really understand the kind of socioeconomic reality of the characters. At the same time, there's a whole lot of detail about what their everyday experience is like and not a whole lot of background about where they came from or or how they got there. And so I ended up being, for example, really unsatisfied with what could have been that great Seder scene, the long... I think they're at Judd Hirsch's house at that point. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure who's her, whose house they're at, but they're at the extended family's house having their Seder. And uh, and there's so many great little family details in there. But as you say, I didn't quite understand, well, what about his family? You know, is he closer to her family than his family? Does he come from any money? Sort of how does all of this work together? At one point much later on too, Judd Hirsch, his father-in-law, gets in on a scheme with him, right, and goes to that auction house and artificially bids up the gem. And you're also not sure how long he's been dragging that character, who's named Gooey. I love that he's named <laughs> So good. We don't know how long he's been dragging Gooey into his schemes or if Gooey objects to it. Then Eric Bogosian, who plays his brother-in-law, is also one of his debtors who's lent him a bunch of money. And I, maybe this is because just the dialogue was so overlapping and it was going so fast, but it took me quite a while to put together that Eric Bogosian was actually his brother-in-law because we get to know him as his debtor who's sending thugs to beat him up. Oh, yeah. I we don't... get to know that he's his brother-in-law. Is that supposed to be a surprise reveal? Yeah. Yes, I think so. Um, when you see him there, and which I think underlines the desperation of a situation, I think that's deliberate. I guess that sense of disorientation that you describe is purposeful. And to you, it made you want to know more details and feel like you weren't connecting to the story. But to me, I, it kept me off kilter in a way that I thought was helpful to put me in the spirit of what Howard was going through. Yeah, people love the off-kilterness of this movie and also Adam Sandler's performance in it, which I agree is great, but I've also been somewhat baffled by the critical wave of of praise for Adam Sandler because I just feel like Adam Sandler has done so many great dramatic roles over the past 20 years. I mean, I feel like I could just tick them off, you know, Punch Drunk Love and Meyerowitz stories, then movies that aren't good like Spanglish, but he still plays a straight dramatic role in it, or the Meyerowitz stories, the Baumbach movie from a couple years ago. Like, it's so not news that Adam Sandler can act. So to me, I felt like he was just kind of turning the Sandler up to 11. I mean, I'm not trying to make this movie my enemy or something, but (laughs) if this becomes kind of widely cited as... Adam Sandler is back. I I guess I'm just scratching my head a little bit about it because it never seems like he really went away. Right. Well, I just wanted to add, I think it is purposeful, um, the the disorientation 
aspect, as Jeff said, but maybe it's a little underthought because I was thinking about that Seder scene. So I think it's at Judd Hirsch's house, but then Adam Sandler's mom is there too. And when you're at your in-laws' house, are are like your parents there? No, right? <laughs> well, it's just it's it's a pretty big deal that his mom is suddenly in that scene. And I actually did love the scene where she was reading the plagues out in yes, Hebrew, and he's that. putting the drops of wine on the mm-hmm. plate. Little details like that are such nice texture, you know. Mm-hmm. But but why couldn't the mom be a character? You know, mm-hmm. I mean. Not making her a character is leaving a story element on the table that I think would have enriched the story, right? Because it's one more person that can either be disgusted with him or concerned for him or teach us something about him. But she was really just there to to add texture in that scene. Another example of a moment that I thought there was a story element left on the table is when Damani, the character played by Lakeith Stanfield, who we haven't talked about, but he's sort of a, a hustler who helps get people into the store, right? He seems to mm-hmm. be this freelancer whose job is to get high rollers into the store and possibly spend money there, including Kevin Garnett and his crowd. So there's this moment that two of them jump in a car, right? Because Kevin Garnett has borrowed the gem, the hunk of opal, which we haven't even <laughs> introduced yet. Yes, I guess we should say what the uncut gem is. Yes, and I, we actually d- also didn't talk about the very intro to the movie in Africa. So do you want to interest, introduce us to the gem, Jeff, through that um, that pre-credits cold open? Yes, I'd love to. So um, the movie opens with like a very uncharacteristic shot for the Safdies, not least of all because it's not in New York. Um, I'm not sure that they actually filmed in Ethiopia. I think they did. I stayed till the end of the credits and it's, it's, it, there seemed to be an Africa unit. So they went a long way for a very short scene. It's not surprising. I can imagine them not wanting to film something like that somewhere else. But you open in this scene with these like beautiful like panoramic, what I presume are drum shots over like the coast. Um, and then you go into what seems to be like a diamond mine of, of sorts, or at least a precious mineral mine, through a series of close-ups on someone's very open wound, uh, realize that the workers are in a, a, the midst of a revolt um, because someone was injured, and two others go down into the mine and find what seems to be a quite beautiful stone. And then the next time we see it, it's arriving inside of a fish in the jewelry shop, Um and Adam Sandler's freaking out. Um, Kevin Garnett, who I now know as a basketball player, is in the <laughs> shop when it arrives. Lakeith Stanfield has brought him there, um, trying to sell him, I don't know, some kind of expensive watch or something. Um, and Adam Sandler freaks out and opens up the gem. And it is a quite beautiful opal. I don't know much about um, this sort of industry um, and what these things are actually worth, but it is uh, a great rock. And Adam Sandler, this is basically him. Howard has uh, put all of his... Uh, eggs in this basket it seems like it's a very valuable he expects to get a million dollars for it and kevin garnett the basketball player falls in love with it he he gives this very rousing speech um about how dinosaurs walked with it and how it's like a truly like long has a long history that's quite infectious i think um and he sells it a little too well and then kevin garnett takes the gem and says i need this for tonight i have a game and Howard's like, ah, no, and um, ultimately lets him take it, even though it's supposed to be auctioned within a few days. Yeah, which is the very first horrible decision he makes <laughs> in the movie, which leads to so many other horrible decisions. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
I want to get back to the the gem and what it means to the Safdie brothers, what they're trying to say in, in all of these mystical shots inside the gem, et cetera. But let's shelve that for the moment. Thank you for explaining that, because I wanted to just say that after Kevin Garnett, as you say, takes the rock because he's mystically kind of bonded with it and decided that it's his good luck charm for the game that night. And Howard Ratner, Adam Sandler's character, very stupidly agrees to let him take it, although he does take his NBA championship ring as collateral, right? Mm-hmm. Um there's this moment where Garnett doesn't return it the next day, and Damani and Howard get in a car together to drive to Philadelphia, right? And so in my mind, I thought, oh, great, there's going to be a different tonality to this. There's going to be a road trip. You know, there's going to not be this kind of constant frenetic screaming in your face, Adam Sandler. There's going to be some <laughs> moment where, like, Lakeith Stanfield is pulling over and getting a Twinkie at a gas station or something. <laughs> and uh, and we'll get to know something about their friendship, about Damani's character, you know, that there would be a little world building in that transition. And instead, they cut to immediately them being in Philadelphia. And that, you know, again, is part of the always jumping ahead kind of pacing of this movie. But like the mom at the Seder, it was a moment where I sort of thought, well, wait a minute, look, he's Danfield. I want to know more about him. And in fact, he does kind of drop out of the movie. We never really learn what happens to him at the end. So I guess to me, these are all examples of this compelling world being set out there and then parts of it just kind of being let drop because of the amount of space that the Adam Sandler character takes up in every second of the movie. Yes. And so while this is all happening, I just want to bring up the next subject, which we haven't talked about at all, but is my favorite part of the movie. His mistress, as um, oh, yeah. they're called she's him. So <laughs> um, she's this, um, her name's Julia in the movie. And it turns out in real life, another thing I didn't know until I read about the movie after, her name is Julia Fox. And she's like a real, like, downtown girl type, classic New York, like, tabloid fixture type of person. Another um, thing that we should think of as, as disappearing from New York, right? The Edie Sedgwick's or whatever, mm-hmm. but she's she's a real life one. Oh no, she she's apparently is, and her, the, there's a if anyone's interested in this sort of world and like finds this woman amusing in the movie, I highly recommend the New York Times Styles did a, just did a big piece about her, and it is fucking hilarious. Oh my god, <laughs> I'll track that down. So she's kind of a similar character in real life. Yes, I mean everyone's like there's like a great part where they like other actresses like tried out for the part like like real actresses because she's apparently never really acted before and she was like yeah but i'm playing me and also like they didn't have enough budget like that's her (laughs) quote about the movie (laughs) well it it was sort of based on her but then she still had to audition i think that's basically yeah that's what my understanding um i also thought she was fantastic Uh, she's so beautiful but she also seems real to me she just reminded me of so many people i've known the way she talks she sort of has this like weird lisp sometimes um and this question lingered for me but like was her butt real? She had like this huge <laughs> butt that I was like, did she get butt injections? When are we going to talk about that? <laughs> I, lo- <laughs> I love that question. I, if anything, I would imagine it would be inserts, but I don't. Maybe the Safdies wouldn't allow that. Actually, that's kind of shit that they probably. Then again, if she does that in real life, maybe they would. It's hard to say. Oh, her character would completely right. I mean, there's kind of an implication that her character was basically a call girl before she got put up by Adam Sandler Is as there? his mistress, oh, right? I- because when she's in the what, and when she's in the bathroom with the weekend, right at the party, the thing that you know drives this huge wedge between them, she says something to Adam Sandler when he pulls her out, like I was on the verge of closing a huge deal, oh. remember? And then he says, "Oh, you're just a skank. I can't remember." He insults mm-hmm. her in some way, and she says, "Oh, but you knew what I was when we got together," or something like that. I mean, it's all said at top volume with Onio Tricks yeah. point never <laughs> shrieking in the background. Yeah, the I, electronic score. So you might not have gotten that line, but I think that there's kind of an implication that you know she used to kind of go from guy to guy, and now she's been sort of 
a kept woman by Adam Sandler for a while. Although we also get the revelation in the second half of the movie, which is a total surprise to me, that she's kind of in love with him. Yeah, I guess my read on that was more that she was like some sort of like promoter hustler type who like needed those relationships in order to like make money somehow. But I, it could have been that too. So basically, while this is all happening, Adam Sandler, Howard, um, is having this affair with her and she's like a big part of his life and they're like there's like a great sex scene where he's like hiding in the closet texting her telling her to do stuff and she's doing and he's watching it's actually kind of i don't know almost touching i guess i was less surprised than you when it turns out they love each other um like i was just surprised she loves him i mean he, well, he doesn't have a lot to offer <laughs> like well he's kind of flashy and rich and like does give her an apartment and also like he's not like completely repulsive in a way a character like this could have been like he's Adam Sandler, he's only in his 50s. He's like a relatively handsome man, all things considered. Like, I don't know. I didn't think that the sexual relationship seems so crazy. Um, but anyway, I was saying that The weekend he plays himself in 2012 where they act like no one's heard of him. But by then, he was it was already a thing, right? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, that's around the time he was emerging. Oh, and I noticed at the beginning of the movie, the second time I watched it, he is credited as his real name is like Abel Tesfe or something, <laughs> which was fun to see on, on screen. But that was around the time he was emerging. And I, when he first came out, it was definitely like his name is great for joking, like The weekend. What's that? That's a person. <laughs> um, I guess we're jumping around a lot. But the point is, is that they're in the club and he's like randomly in this movie in a bunch of scenes. And he has a thing with uh, Julia, Howard's girlfriend, where they're in the bathroom. And the scene, I was honestly surprised that he was willing to do it because it was like, borderline rapey i thought like she was saying no don't touch me no no and he was like not really like taking that for an answer and i thought it was sort of a weird thing for someone to be willing to do playing even a fictionalized version of themselves interesting interesting because the no touching to me that was another moment when i thought she seems like a professional because it was almost like what a stripper Mm. would say in the back room of a strip club or something like that i felt like her no touching was not so much i don't want to be touched as like that's not part of the deal yet but yeah, it could be. I mean, they're doing coke in a bathroom and like a like a meatpacking club, I think it is, <laughs> right. like our Chelsea club. So I guess uh, the implications here are sort of open to interpretation. Right. I mean, but again, I feel like this speaks again to the murkiness of the movie is that none of us quite know what Julia is. Like you would think that she might have some kind of side hustle, but she also works in a jewelry store and she seems to me like a call girl. And maybe that's all just supposed to be like floating on the surface. But a part of me wants to have more about this world nailed down for me Mm -hmm. to actually understand, like, where does Julia come from? Where does her money come from? What would she do if she didn't have Adam Sandler? How desperate would she be for money? Those things all seem important in things like why she makes the decision to place that giant bet for him at the end, an incredibly risky thing for her to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I mostly wanted to talk about her because I love the performance so much. I just so, so enjoyed spending time with the character. Completely agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she has that quality that the Safdies try to bring when they cast people that aren't professional actors, as they often do, which is that, you know, you don't even ask the question, can she act or can she not? She's just a wonderful personality and presence on screen. Like, I don't care if she has range and can do anything else. I just want that person's personality to come across. And it's great seeing, you know, her magnetic quality interact with like Kevin Garnett's like she flirts with him and they interact for a minute. 
it's great seeing those energies bounce off of each other. Kevin Garnett is actually also really good, and he has a very hard thing to do, right? (laughs) I mean, he has to play, I don't know if he really does have a superstitious streak in real life, but he has to play this moment of this weird passion for this rock, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, I wanted to say this is going to be such a, like, entry-level comment, but it's, I think part of what's funny about the rock is, like, in basketball, you call the ball the rock sometimes. So, like, that he's carrying this rock around, it, it, it just, like, relates back to basketball in that way (laughs) i love that these are facts that i did not know thank you heather (laughs) so i feel like there's so many things happening at once in this movie that i'm not sure what thread to trace but i think we should maybe just go with the thugs the various hired muscle people from actually this is kind of a funny point in the movie from two different bets apparently right there's two different sets of creditors that are chasing him around with Mm -hmm. muscle one of them seems to be scarier than the other (laughs) because this sort of old balding gray-haired guy with his gray-haired muscle just gets locked out of the shop and ignored most of the time Mm -hmm. yeah i know they're so good And they also are just great character faces that were found around New York somewhere. But it's Eric Bogosian, his brother-in-law, Howard's brother-in-law, who's hired the more serious thugs to chase him around. And uh, and they get him into all kinds of scrapes, some of them comical, like when he's locked naked into his trunk at his daughter's high school play. There's a kind of a slapstick element at the beginning to some of the situations he gets in because of his being so deeply in debt all the time. Yeah, that scene was kind of weird. Like, why did they just drive him around and then put him in the trunk? I guess to humiliate him in front of his wife? I think the idea was to humiliate him, and yeah, so that his wife will know, you know? I mean, it's interesting because that's his brother-in-law, right? So that's kind of his wife's relative. We don't know if it's his wife's brother or his wife's sister's husband, but... I think we're supposed to assume it's his wife's sister's husband because she's talking about her sister and how her sister is jealous of her sometimes. And also he's so not Jewish that he can't be in her family. Heather is interviewing the statue specifically about the movies like elements of like New York area Jewishness. And I'm wondering, do you have like a grand theory or assessment uh, of the movie and the depiction? Because, I mean, it's been pointed out, perhaps, that <laughs> there's this is this guy is quite obsessed with money. He's quite obsessed with African-American culture. He's he, There's stereotypical elements to oh, this. If this wasn't made by two Jews, I think it would be anti-Semitism, <laughs> right? right? To say nothing of the women, I mean, I also love the Adina Mazel character when she, like, stares at Howard and calls him and says, your face is so stupid. Or, I hate your stupid <laughs> oh, face. She's so good in that scene. It it's made me wish fantastic. there was more, more Adina. But, like, when they're all just, like, screaming at each other about the bar mitzvah dress, it's, just, like, it's like a lot. Um, and I want Batman. Look at this. Look at this. Um, and I just thought that, um, I, yeah, I'm just wondering, like, do you, what was your general vibes when it came to it? Did you think? Well, we didn't mention yet. So the gem from Africa, it, it comes from Ethiopian Jews. So there is like this heritage or connection between the Howard character and, and like they're Jews, he's a Jew, but he's also like stealing it from them and exploiting them. And I think that comes into play later with just his relationship with um, the, the black community in general, like Kevin Garnett sort of questions him about it. I was reading a little bit that this character is based on a few different people, but one of them is this real guy, Jacob the Jeweler, who sold a lot of rappers things and got famous for that and then eventually went to jail. Um, and he he was Jewish. He was Bukharian or a Jew from U- Uzbekistan. And it's just like it, it reminds me in The Wire of um, all the thugs having Jewish lawyers. It's just like, of course, the um, diamond dealer is a Jew. What other type is there? <laughs> like, um, and loving basketball, too. I mean, like the Howard character, like uh, says his little um, repeated 
stat about how the first person who scored in the NBA or whatever was a Jew. And it it just, I don't know, it, it made sense to me. I don't think there was anything, uh, I don't know, nefarious about it. (laughs) I agree. I agree. But I I would be curious to hear that when you talk to the Safdie brothers, please ask them the question that I'm about to ask you guys. Mm -hmm. Why do you think the movie starts in Africa? What do you think they're trying to say about whether it's about the relation of blacks to Jews in the United States or about labor exploitation or about globalism? Why did they travel all that way to get a very short scene in Africa so that we know the origin of this gem? Yeah, please do ask that, Heather. Heather, if we, if we haven't said, Heather will be talking to them in a few hours, and I'm really looking forward to the interview. To me, my read on that before I was thinking more about the Jewish connection was that it felt probably a little weird to them to make a movie that's about uh, the diamond trade and not, or the gem trade in this case. Um, Opals, they're not diamonds, are they? I don't really no, know. No, no, no. They're they're, they're, I don't think they're even the most valuable gems. It was more. It's more, I guess, that this is a very rare kind of opal, the yeah. black opal. The black opal, interestingly, right? The whole question of blacks and Jews. Yeah, I guess I saw it as them nodding to the exploitation that goes up and down. And then there's later a great scene when Kevin Garnett finally does buy the gem from Howard, where Kevin Garnett's like, how much did you really pay for this? Versus I think he pays around 165, 175. And Howard doesn't want to tell him. And he says, finally, that he paid 100,000 for it, which is frankly more than I was expecting. And uh, Kevin Garnett is not happy about it. Um, and then Howard gives this big impassioned speech about how it's like winning basketball. And it's about hustling and it's about taking what's yours and triumphing and having this connection to it. And I assume that it's setting up that scene and it has to do with the different pieces of the movie in that sense. But I am very much looking forward to the answer that they give. Because there's something about the the rock itself that's that's very important to them, and we might as well get into that now since we're covering this movie from every possible different <laughs> angle. Then we'll then we'll jump back into Howard and his peregrinations around the East Coast after the the rock. But that that uh, that opening shot where they tunnel into the rock, right? The mm-hmm. rock is found by the miners in the cold open, and. And the connection between that and the rest of the movie, the way the Safdies transition into the movie proper, is that the camera tunnels into the rock, goes on this completely trippy psychedelic, I mean, it's like the 2001 Space Odyssey psychedelic trip sequence, right? Where we're going through the crystalline structures of the rock and all these colors with the Oniotrix Point Never score again going <laughs> crazy. And uh, and then that turns into the colonoscopy of Adam Sandler. So <laughs> it's, it's the one of the first of two times in the movie that there'll be this connection between the rock and a mystical universe inside the rock and then that mystical universe turning into the interior of Howard's body. <laughs> and uh, and that to me was the most intriguing thing of the whole movie, maybe because it's so out of keeping with the tone of the rest of the movie, which, you know, is this sort of, I don't know what you'd call it. It's very crowded and claustrophobic, but it's hyper real, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not any supernatural element to the movie, but in those moments, which are the bookends of the movie, the beginning and end, there seems to be the suggestion about something supernatural that connects the, the gem to, to Howard. I wonder if you if you guys had any thoughts about that. Um, how soon did you guys know it was a colon? <laughs> like I had I I felt like um, I was weirdly proud. Like before they revealed it, I was like, "That's a colon." Where I I know that we're in, <laughs> inside. Like um, you, know, Katie Couric always does the the footage of colonoscopies, and and I just recognized it. <laughs> I think there actually are moments. I I almost don't have the words to describe them, but that are more mystical. Um, yes. Uh, in the movie than than most of the movie. Like there's this shot. 
of Adam Sandler just like in the apartment from the outside, almost like surveillance, um, where they just play the sort of mystical score over it. And like, I don't know what that means, really, but they do bring it back throughout the, the movie. There will just be these sort of interludes of like, <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I think one way to read this movie is of uh, like a serious man style chronicle of Howard's like collapse. But you could also read it as someone who knows, who really does have a mystical connection to The Rock and to where he's eventually, it's eventually going to get him and knows that he has to bet. It's not a gambling addiction. It's a divine sort of prerogative or something. Um, and the movie kind of allows for that reading I think I mean it doesn't again it does not end well as we're going to get to presumably fairly soon but I don't know I started to believe him at some point I started to believe that what he was doing wasn't so so crazy which I don't know maybe that speaks to the movie's power by the end <laughs> that it's like overwhelmed me enough that I started to understand why he acted the way he did I feel like I've, I've seen movies about gambling addiction before that give me that feeling mm -hmm. specifically Owning Mahoney I don't know if you guys know it but it's this kind of indie with Philip Seymour Hoffman where he plays a compulsive gambler he's so good in it and and it makes a lot of connections like that there are moments where you sort of can see how for him this pathetic thing of just standing all night at a table in a casino has this kind of sacred quality you know or mystical quality that he's connecting with luck and fate and all of these things. And also The Gambler, which I believe was originally a Dostoevsky story that was made into this great movie with James Caan in the 1970s, directed by Carol Rise. And it has, I remember a moment when he's about to win big and he's in front of a window that looks sort of like a stained glass window with light coming through, you know, and there's this connection of apotheosis and gambling. So I feel like I, I'm familiar with that cinematic <laughs> experience, but I never had it in Uncut Gems. I, and I didn't even know I was supposed to exactly, except in those moments of tunneling through the rock, which again, stuck with me as this kind of mystery outside of the movie. Um, but yeah, we should we should hasten Howard to his sad <laughs> end. I'm not even going to remember all the things that happen in the middle of the movie when he's chasing the rock but he definitely goes to philadelphia with devani he's stanfield's character and fails to get the rock there right mm -hmm. they they can't find kevin garnett and they they sort of lose each other as well right yeah, and he I has think, to take the bus back by like himself. he ditches him right and then like he just like walks away into the locker room <laughs> and then the next thing you know howard's back in new york and you're like oh i guess that's over yeah that was like <laughs> that was another failed attempt um and then after that he gets in trouble with the auction house there's the whole kind of ongoing problem with the snobby english uh, auctioneers who want to get the rock to um, sell it the following i read day. that the that's voiced by tilda swinton the oh auctioneer. that's amazing <laughs> wow that was it's amazing that she agreed to do it you yeah. know such a small part um but that, of course she was able to give it that icy british mm -hmm. reserve that makes makes him seem so out of place in the, in the jewelry house which i love um but Eventually, he gets gooey, Judd Hirsch's father-in-law, <laughs> to go into an auction against Kevin Garnett, the idea being to artificially drive up the price. But, of course, that fails, too. Oh, right. Because and gooey ends up with the rock. He, um, Adam Sandler, um, just based on his own estimation, says, well, it's um, X, it's, you know, 1,000 to 3,000 per carat, and then it's 600 carats, so this has to be worth a million. But the jewelry house, when they actually get it and they appraise it, it's for much less, which he's sort of panicking about, but then he still needs to sell it because he needs to make some profit on it. And he knows that Kevin Garnett is interested and is going to bid on it, but he doesn't know if anyone will bid against him. So that's where the Judd Hirsch um, character comes in. He's, he's shown up to sort of support um, Howard. And um, then Howard has 
to ask him, you know, will, will you drive up the price? Right. But of yes. course it fails and he ends up stuck with the rock himself. And so the very last transaction that happens, remind me again, how does Kevin Garnett finally come into possession of the rock? I think that they just call him and say, oh, good news. It's actually available <laughs> again. And then he comes to the office and that's when they have that moment where he like kind of like questions um, the past of the rock and how much he's being exploited. And uh, Howard launches into his great um, tirade about hustling and justifying basically in a fairly convincing way that he deserves the rock and deserves it. Um, and then he finally sells it to him. He had pawned his championship ring that he had taken as collateral and he finally gotten that back. And the movie finally has this moment where you think, okay, things are calming down. He this is finally, more. this is finally happening the way that it's supposed to happen. And then immediately, what does Howard do? He had also sort of um, broken up with Julia and seemed like maybe things with um, his wife were back on track too. And, uh, he decides to abandon all of that. Yeah, I think, yeah, so he did have, we should just for posterity mention the amazing blowout fight scene that he has with <laughs> Julia outside the club after the weekend scene happens and Howard sort of discovers them in the bathroom and they just scream at each other in such a magical way on the street. Um, and that's like Julia's, I think, finest scene. She's like wearing this like totally amazing outfit and she's just marching down the street screaming at him <laughs> in a way that like I imagine we could go to One Oak or whatever that club is and see it happen My tonight. favorite part of that scene <laughs> is that after he gets in the cab and drives away, she's walking past that line of people waiting to get to the club <laughs> and they're mocking her and she's just like spitting it back in their face. Oh, she's yeah. so oh, yeah. good there. I, no, that was so good. I love that too. She says to someone, what are you looking at? And, and they retort, not much. Like I've heard that yeah. in real life. No, and then she's like, bitch, that's why you're in line and marches back into the club. Yeah. It's so fantastic. Anyway, so all of this happens. I, I guess I got less the impression that his wife was going to ever have anything to do with him again. His kids seem to hate him too, the young woman more than the boys. But I, yeah, I don't know. I got less the impression maybe he thought that was going to happen um, since things were presumably financially back on track. I just thought there there was a moment of satisfaction or, or something on Adina Menzel's face when, when they visit the apartment because um, Howard wants to see that Julia has moved out. She just seemed like pleased to know that she was no longer there or, or something, even if she wasn't going to take him back. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess I didn't know what to make of how she reacted in that scene. But maybe you're right. But also his son did see, um, did hear about. Um, his, his son went in to go to the bathroom and he encounters uh, the guy from Good Times, which was a shout out <laughs> to their last movie, Good Time. Um, and the neighbor says, oh, there's a hot chick living in your dad's apartment. So the son knows about it. Um, and, and that sort of seed is planted if nothing comes of it. I also thought the kids were great. Like, that kid is probably like 11 years old, like a, a pretty awkward age. They have his mustache sort of like half coming in mm -hmm. and, and he's gambling on sports too. And um, yeah, I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really sad to imagine what happens to his kids and wife after the movie's over, right? Because, ugh, all right, all right we'll, we'll get there. Um, so yes, he makes his last big stupid bet on, I think it's a playoffs game, right? Once again, basketball knowing listeners will be scorning us, but I think I think it was the 2012 playoffs. I so believe that's it's correct. A big end of season game. I looked this up. The final series ended up being between uh, Miami and Oklahoma. And so the Celtics eventually lost to the Miami Heat. Um, and then the Heat went to the finals. But the game before that, it was Celtics versus Philadelphia. And Celtics went 
want that. So they're kind of like two levels removed from the finals. I'm sure there's a much better way of saying okay. that. But, but you could say that it's an important late yes. season game mm-hmm. and that the bet he makes is extra stupid because it's not just betting all of his money his, that was going to save him from being beaten to death. But doesn't he bet on a big spread? Doesn't he say not only are they going to win, but they're going to win by X number of points? He yes. has some specifics in the, the bet where it, it matters who gets the tip off. Um, and they, they use this language of gambling that, you know, I don't understand, but seems very real where it's like three players <laughs> versus crazy eights or I don't know. Yeah, no, it is. It is specific and sports gambling is another thing I know nothing about, but it seems legit. And we should say that during the scene where he's making the bet, he doesn't just make the bet, right? He's trapped his brother-in-law and the two thugs he's been carrying around with him in like the in-between of his jewelry store where you have to be like buzzed into that room and then be buzzed again Which to be let out. Which is a thing the whole movie and I love that detail. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. The- that is well set up that, that that buzzer is it barely works. It's incredibly loud. It's a big part of his work day to try to buzz people in and out and that's set up very well. When he locks them into basically what's a bulletproof glass cage at the end until the game is over, he's almost just putting them in cold storage, right? So that he right. can finish watching his game. Um, it's, it's just very kind of geographically believable because we know the layout of the store so well by that totally point. yes and he has um julia run to the other um suite next door and they have to do this exchange through the window which of I the loved. money of the money the money <laughs> yeah. had just been handed over and they're exchanging the money like outside it has this very caperish quality that's like almost fun at that point although you're also like just like pulling your hair out because like howard it's like howard but can I, again, this is just me being a crank about this movie at any possible moment, but I would have so much more of a caperish feeling about that money handoff and about Julia going to the casino. I was also confused where the casino is because she seems to get there in five minutes or something. She seems to get there just very quickly she for it being a in a different state. That's true. <laughs> she does take a helicopter. <laughs> How do they afford a helicopter? I mean, none of it makes any sense of economic sense. Oh, he booked a blade. It's like the Uber of helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I would feel more caperish and just I would believe more more, that she would go to this extreme to place a bet for this guy who just threw her out of her apartment if there had been some setup of who they are to each other, how she feels about gambling. You know, is she a compulsive gambler? Does she love risk? Is part of why she's attracted to Adam Sandler because of his attraction to risk? There was something a little bit too gangster's mall at the ready about the fact that she was just there to place the bet, you know, and that none of what we had previously learned about their history seemed to figure into her agreement to place the bet. I sort of agree, but I also did believe it. I mean, the scene before, she had shown him that she had gotten, like, a tattoo of his name on her ass, right? There's so many ridiculous details, and she's (laughs) such an ostentatious character that I could see her glomming onto this, like, fellow New York sort of type in a way that... It was believable to me in the moment, and while you talk about it here, I completely see why it was not to you. (laughs) I mean, all I needed was one scene where maybe they were watching a ball game together and going crazy, you know, or she was placing a bet, or we just had some sense that she, too, was just a crazy person who likes to take wild risks. I mean, I guess we get that a little bit from what she does with The weekend at the club, but I just didn't know enough about her relationship to gambling or to Howard to quite understand that twist. Um, but okay, let's go back to the bulletproof cage where Eric Bogosian <laughs> and his hired thugs, who all, by the way, I don't know if they're professional actors or not, but they have incredible faces, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're all sitting utterly disgusted and in disbelief that the money that's been owed them for so long is is in Adam Sandler's hands and he has now gotten rid of it. They figure out the scheme, the Gangster's Mall scheme, right? Um, which I can't remember how they figured it out. Via security camera? They're, they have an 
another thug outside and they're just yelling to him through the door like go go after her she's at the mohican sun yeah i think he they heard overheard howard say something on the phone or something like that but somehow they figured it out and we should say if you haven't seen the movie and you're listening to this that like the where the location that they're in it's like plexiglass or like bulletproof plexiglass so they're watching howard do all of this and watching the game with and him. watching the game with him when it comes on well, so. and it's like a security measure for somewhere presumably where um they're really expensive things changing hands like you need to be buzzed in and it, I guess it's to prevent them from being robbed but ultimately leads to his downfall <laughs> yes so there so this is just this amazing setup you have to even if you don't I, I understand your objections to the movie but this like setup is like such a great final I completely set agree. piece where they're I just agree. staring at him like freaking out like the color is drained of their faces they're waving guns at Howard and Howard's just like having the fucking time of his life <laughs> he's like loving the game He's loving the game. He's loving that all the pieces have fallen in place, or so he thinks. And um, meanwhile, Julia is off at uh, the casino, um, kind of being chased down by the thugs, the thugs is thugs, um, <laughs> and being hit on by men. Um, she realizes that a guy invites her up to his room, and she realizes that's actually safer for her than to be in the actual casino. So she goes up to the guy's room, who is this just sort of impossibly tanned... Um, I don't know. Do you do you have any sense of who that guy is? In I think real, he's, he's another found person. Life, yeah, but he's, he's another found he real person. He might be a jewelry guy, or it, it was in some piece. But he he's um, he has an interesting backstory. I'm sure I, you've probably read like a biography of everybody in this movie. <laughs> um, and so she's seemingly safe up in the hotel room while this is all happening. Um, and then I guess the game starts going Howard's way, which you know if you know anything about basketball, but I did not. <laughs> I would say that what most sticks with me in that plexiglass scene, which I kind of agree, even though there's so much in this movie that didn't sit well with me going up to it, it's it's Lumet worthy. I mean, that, just, <laughs> that setup of them in that cage, watching him watch the game. And I think my favorite thing in that scene is Eric Bogosian's reaction shots as the game goes on. And almost the arc that he travels from, you know, disgust to rage to resignation to in several moments, almost admiration. It's all, yes. Especially when the game starts going well and he sees that this crazy scheme is actually paying off for, for Howard Ratner. There's almost this sense of, you know, he's in awe of his brother-in-law's just stupid way of leading his life <laughs> that somehow has nonetheless led to this moment. I completely agree. I thought that was some of the best supporting acting of the movie, just the look of, like, complete utter helplessness going to like, well, he pulled it off. So, <laughs> right. And if you don't know, Eric Bogosian is the guy who plays um, the Pennsylvania senator that Shiv works for on Succession. I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's a reference point that people might know. Um, and he's that scene, he's just amazing in that part. I mean, to me, Eric Bogosian, I still associate him with his kind of shock jock era. He was never a DJ, but, you know, he was an actor and sort of stand-up monologuist and stuff who who traded an abrasiveness almost of the, of the Howard Ratner kind, you know? So it's really cool oh, to see him that. aging into this I didn't know that role. at all. Yeah. Um, that There's was... lots of 90s movies where he's kind of like the obnoxious, white, ethnic, in-your-face guy. I While you mentioned DJs, another fun cameo in this movie that will not be familiar to us, but others will know, is um, Mike Francesca, the, the big sports... The Francesa, team, isn't it Francesa? Fran Francesa, which I don't even know how to say it, is um, he plays a bookie in the movie. Um, he's the guy with the white slick back hair oh nice yeah he's great <laughs> yeah and another one of those people who speaks to this you know this world that i wish new york was like where it's mm -hmm. sort of like damon runyon cigar chewing <laughs> dudes everywhere all right so we have to get to howard's sad end which i mean for me i knew it was going to be sad from the beginning right like did you guys think that howard would survive this movie i don't know if i thought he was going to die 
Uh, I definitely didn't think he was going to succeed in what he was trying to do, which he kind of does, although God knows what he would have done when he got his hands on that money. And God knows what's <laughs> going to happen to Julia at the end, right? I mean, it's hard to imagine that she's going to be able to hold on to it. Well, yeah, let's just quickly talk about that before we talk about the bad thing. Um so there's that scene where she's come. You see, all of a sudden, she gets the money, but you see, well, you see the guy who she was in the hotel room with getting the money. You think, oh fuck, like maybe he did something to her. Maybe he was in on the scheme. But it's a bait and switch, which was kind of cruel, I thought. And she's like waiting in a limo and has put him up to getting the money for her, so no one sees her. And he gives her the money, and she just drives away with it. And I have to tell you that in my personal vision of her future, <laughs> she has <laughs> uncut gems too. She has that money, and she's carrying on Howard's legacy, and everything's happy. <laughs> but it is true that those guys know that she has that money. The th- the thugs know, and uh, possibly that's not how it goes. God, um, I just hope she's okay. Yeah. She'll take the money. <laughs> she's but a hustler. <laughs> Um, yes, and so the reason we're worried about her is because basically the game is over, and Howard lets them into the shop for some reason instead of letting them out. Yeah, and at that point, they, they've just had enough, and um, Eric Bogosian's character has sort of lost control of them. They're pissed off enough that they just shoot Howard. And, and it's, that, it's that guy, the guy with the incredible face, who I presume I know, is also a so real-life find who shoots him. <laughs> and the fact that there's no dialogue before he shoots him or explanation of why is really powerful because... Mm-hmm. Essentially, I mean, like so much in this movie, people are just acting on impulse. And essentially, I feel like that guy just shoots him because he's mad. He was bored being stuck in the plexiglass cage. Yes. You know, he's not fulfilling Eric Bogosian's desires at that point. In fact, Eric Bogosian is upset about it until he is subsequently shot a few seconds later. Right. But it really seems to be this moment that just that guy's id kind of takes over. Like you you dissed me, you locked me in a plexiglass cage and I'm not putting up with this anymore. Yeah, they definitely like foreshadow it. There's a couple other scenes where he loses control too. Like a little bit more it seems than Eric wants him to and then it's just finally... Yeah, and he doesn't just shoot him. He shoots him in the head. It is like a very graphic, like, Point oh, fuck, yeah. kind of moment. Yeah, and, and even if, like me, you were kind of ready for the movie to be over 20 minutes ago, <laughs> it's really sad to see to see Howard end that way. Yeah. And so is it only Eric Bogosian and Adam Sandler's characters who end up dead in that scene? Yes. That's, that's the casualties of the scene, right? And then there's that kind of awful moment where the guys just transform into robbers, right? I mean, the hired muscle guys just start breaking open the glass cages and taking all the jewelry. Yeah, it's it is a rough scene. Eric uh, meets his end because he sort of like refuses to go along with the robbery, I think, or he won't stay out of it. And so the other guy has lost it, just shoots him in the head too. And then they he also objects to their shooting of Howard, right? Doesn't he say, "What are you guys doing?" I mean, as you say, is a moment when essentially the the boss becomes you know their prey, and Mm -hmm. they're just they're just this pure amoral force that's taken over. And you're thinking of of Howard's family a little because there had been the suggestion earlier that maybe um, when they were communicating with the thug outside that they sent someone after his family. So yes. he had called his family to tell them to to get out of their house and, and they were sitting there worrying and like the Adina Menzel character is saying like he was naked in um, the trunk. This has to mean something and they're going to have this family tragedy um, that is going to sort of explain everything soon. I was picturing them finding out um, and kind of getting the answers to their questions, but obviously not the way that they would like to. Yeah, and as awful as their relationship was, as clear it, as it is that that marriage shouldn't have lasted, it's tragic to think of the repercussions on all these other characters. Once again, cards left on the table because we could have gotten to know some of those characters like his mother or Damani better to know what his death might have right. meant to them. I, I yeah. was thinking a little of the scene um, 
Howard had with his daughter where he was um, telling her how proud he was of her um, of being in the play like before he goes out to the club and she just you know can barely look up from her phone conversation she's having to acknowledge like there's just so much teenage disdain there and like the normal teenage disdain but just like an extra level of it because he's him and I presumably has messed up so much yeah and you see all of his kids get ignored and and badly parented by him at various times right the one that he lies to about the mistress and then mm-hmm. the younger one who whose bedtime in the race car <laughs> neon lit bed <laughs> he um he comes up to to say goodnight to him and essentially ignores him and watches basketball the whole time so i mean he's yeah. a sucky sucky dad but mm-hmm. it's still a horrible ending for him and so the very last thing that happens we get back to my favorite part of the movie tunneling inside <laughs> rocks and people's bodies and the camera does this very bold and weird thing it's a, been a sort of a handheld camera through the whole movie the cinematographer is this legendary cinematographer Darius Kanji who's usually known for you know beautiful compositions and he shot Midnight in Paris for Woody Allen you know it's sort of for presenting these painterly images and this movie is obviously very much the opposite right it's all about jitteriness and almost ugly neon lit surfaces and things not being beautiful um, but at the end the camera does this really bold thing of diving into the wound on Adam Sandler's face which is this combination of you know it's it's gross and gory but then it becomes beautiful and it's essentially the reverse journey from how we started at the beginning right instead of going from inside a jewel to inside a body it becomes the opposite and that kind of morphs into the the credit sequence and uh yeah, for, for all the trash I've talked about this movie, I think that ending is, is really brilliant. Essentially, everything from locking the guys in the cage up through that, that final camera move just really works. Do we know anything about like the art design of that, those sequences? I was trying to place what exactly they were doing and showing like what the color saturation and all of that, like what that was coming from, and I couldn't really. Well, it's credited. I w- I'm not going to remember the group that did it, but that specific sequence is credited in the credits. In other oh, words, wh- whatever they call it, Journey Inside the Gem or something like that. There's a specific outfit of oh, special effects house that did yeah. it. And uh, it's very different from the rest of the movie and very different from their style, the Safdie style in general, right? Yes. Because they like to be all about grit and clutter and how things really look and not to create stylized, beautiful worlds. Yeah, it's very fanciful. I don't know. Did you guys get any vibe of like old school movie theater welcome messages? Like when you're riding the roller coaster and there's like yes. concessions <laughs> with weird colors? I wondered if that was like at all an inspiration, but it also seems sort of out of touch with like the thematic weight of those moments. But that was what I was thinking of when I was watching those moments. Just something about the idea of this space that's neither organic nor inorganic, that's kind of in between, you yeah. know, is a, is a really, really cool place to end um, the image of your movie. Although, once again, we'll ask the Safties when you talk to them, Heather. <laughs> it seems like it's, it's straining toward, in my opinion, but anyway, reaching toward some kind of bigger meaning, metaphysical meaning or geopolitical meaning. You know, I almost thought that we might end up back at the mines again. I had this feeling when the camera went in, like, what if we ended back up at the cliffs of Africa and saw the guys in the mines, you know? And that would make me think that the point that they were trying to make was some larger geopolitical one about, you know, global trade and exploitation and labor and things like that. But they don't ever go back there again. The message that I took from it, uh, maybe this is corny, but something about how... Like, there are a million stories in the Naked City. Like, we just um, tunneled into one person, but, like, everyone has this these weird, like, connections inside them, maybe. Or um, in New York, that it used to be like that, and it was better like that. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought too much about its thematic weight, um, probably because I was too busy thinking of, like, the movie theater stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm interested to know what they say. And I agree with you that it's a beautiful and touching image that feels right, even if I don't have... Th- faintest clue what it means. 
All right, we're ready to wrap, but I'm just realizing I forgot to tell you guys a piece of trivia that I, I learned about this movie researching it before we started talking. Did you know that Jonah Hill was originally attached to play the Howard Ratner character? And how do you feel about a, an Uncut Gems that would have starred Jonah Hill instead? I learned that last night while also reading about the movie a little bit, and like, thank God that didn't happen. <laughs> I I do like Jonah Hill in limited doses, but like, I think he would have brought so much less. I thought one of the nice things about Adam Sandler's performance is that even though he is loud and screaming and like very extra the whole movie, it's kind of stripped down. It doesn't feel like he's overdoing it. It didn't feel very actorly. And I have a hard time believing that that would have been what Jonah Hill would have brought to this. And I, I think I wouldn't be able to get past the age thing. You know, Adam Sandler is the perfect age for this character. I think he has kids about the same age in real life. And I, I like it as the story of a, a family man with these kind of two lives. So it, it wouldn't have worked for, for Jonah Hill to have a family of that age. Um, and also the, the sort of way that we can believe that a, a Julia type would be attracted to a Howard um, type with Adam Sandler, as as Jeff was saying, there's something like maybe maybe Jeff and I, if not Dana, could buy about <laughs> it. Like there's something lovable about him. Like could you see Julia going for Jonah Hill? <laughs> right. No. Yeah, you have to recast uh, that role too. Um, and also, um, I think basketball fans will enjoy that there were a series of basketball players connected to this before um, Kevin Garnett, and apparently they had to rewrite it each time um, to be about the. Um, the right player. Like a series of playoff games that would make sense for the plot, basically. Yeah, exactly. That's why it takes place in 2012, reportedly. Right. So I guess as we go into award season, we'll see uh, how that performance gets talked about in this movie. I have a feeling that it's going to be, it's going to remain out there because most people agree with you guys. It's been very, very well received. And um, and I think it's going to be critically lauded in the, the postseason, the movie postseason. I'm also curious what the Safties will do next. Jeff, they had been offered to direct a 48 Hours remake, right, that they were doing for a while and then backed out of it? Yeah, I guess they just said something on a podcast that it's not happening, which I'm sort of glad about. I don't, they don't need to be remaking movies from the 80s. They can do their own thing. I agree. But but there's no question in my mind that they're going to start to get offered more mainstream studio movies. And I'm just curious to see what they would take and why they would take it. You know, I could maybe see them doing a remake or re revisitation of some kind of 70s movie of the kind that they seem to be in love with, you know, that might make more sense for them than an 80s blockbuster like 48 Hours. Yeah, I think you're right. Apparently, Uncut Gems was something that they've been sitting on for a long time, and they've just gotten distracted by their other projects ever since Daddy Long Legs, and they finally got this movie out the door. And so I think this is like sort of their masterpiece, or at least one of their the things that they really wanted to make. And now... They may be unfortunately tempted to go in that direction. I wish that we could always spend time in just the worlds that they create, but perhaps that's too much to ask. All right. Well, Jeff and Heather, thanks so much for coming in and telling me why I'm wrong to not be in love with Uncut Gems. You did remind me of the things that I do love about it, and there are quite a few. So um, I hope you'll come in and spoil again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Dana. Our engineer today was Merritt Jacob. Our producer was Rosemary Belson. If you have ideas for future movies or TV shows to spoil or other feedback, you can always email us at spoilers at slate.com. For Heather Schwedell and Jeffrey Bloomer, I'm Dana Stevens. We'll talk to you again soon. Do you have a Slate fan in your life? I presume so, if you're listening to this podcast, even if it's yourself. And you can find the perfect gift for that person at the Slate shop. You can pick up a pair of socks in dazzling Slate fuchsia. I should add that I have three pairs of Slate socks and I love them. Or an ultra comfy hoodie featuring the Slate asterisk. 
Now through December 25th, we're offering 15% off using the code SLATE15 at shop.slate.com. That's 15% off Slate merchandise at shop.slate.com when you use the code SLATE15. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.